This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have a really interesting guest. You've probably never heard of him before, and I suspect you will be hearing a lot more from him and his fellows in in the future. His name is Matthew Weatherly White, and he runs the Caprock Group. Uh, He's kind of come to my attention because he specializes in impact investing, which is we we began uh, the process of socially responsible investing as a thing some decades ago that morphed or evolved into ESG, environmental uh, sustainable governance or environmental social governance. And now what he describes as impact investing, he defines in conversation, a really intelligent asset manager located in, of all places, Boise, Idaho, um, running about $3 billion, growing tremendously fast in the space that that he focuses on. This very much is the wave of the future. This is something that at one point in time was a teeny tiny niche. Uh, As he explains it, uh, all the money that exists that's investable is primarily owned by one group of people and it is destined to be inherited by a different group of people. Who are the folks that are really driving uh, ESG and environmental social governance issues in the investing world. Well, they're, they're women and they're millennials. By the way, who's going to inherit all this money? Well, it's likely to be women and millennials. So you can expect this form of investing to become increasingly popular over the next uh, few decades. And his firm uh, is, is in the vanguard of this. Uh, I thought the conversation was quite fascinating. I pushed back as I know many of you who are listening would have wanted me to, to some of the things he said about active and passive and models and what have you. But all told, I thought this was a fascinating conversation. He's a really, really interesting guy. With no further ado, my conversation with Matthew Weatherly White of the Caprock Group. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My guest this week is Matthew Weatherly White, co-founder of the Caprock Group of Impact Investing, and we'll get into specifically what that is. Born in Manhattan, a bit of a globe trotter before you settled in Boise, Idaho, a graduate of Dartmouth College, uh, class of 81. You co-founded Caprock in 05 after an 18-year stint at Smith Barney, and you have been called the most fascinating investor people have never heard of, <laughs> Matthew Weatherly White. Welcome to Bloomberg. Yeah, thanks, Barry. It's uh, great to be here. And obviously, you've heard of me, so it's not that well, no one's heard of me, but uh, I'm, ch- I'm putting you on the list of people who have heard of me. So I, I, read, a, I read a really interesting article about you, and Kiki had reached out to me, and I said, oh, I, I know who he is. I, I read this about him, and Really? And maybe she had previously sent me the link to it. Normally, I never look at anything that comes from PR people. But when when <laughs> someone sends me something and I say, "Oh, I know who that person is," yeah. tell me more. So so let's let's describe why you're such a atypical finance guy. So you you play the bagpipes. You wrote an opera in sixth grade. You've published poetry. You've competed internationally in five different sports. 
You hold a world record in rowing. No longer hold. Oh, it, it's been I, I now surpassed. It has been surpassed, and I think it might actually have been the shortest world record holding tenure in the history of any competitive sport. I set the world record in the heat of an event that was then eclipsed in the final. So, oh, there you go. Yeah, it's, <laughs> I, I hold the distinction, but not for much time. <laughs> so uh, I left out the fact that you were an accomplished chef. You worked as a chef for a while. Oh, and by the way, you manage a $3 billion in dollar investment fund. So not the typical Wall Streeter. Definitely not. Yeah. So so let, let's talk a little bit about um, what you do. Uh, I want to begin with a quote that I read of yours where you had said, capital markets are the most powerful optimization vehicle on the planet. Explain that. Yeah. So um, I like to think of capital flows as being driven by gravity. You know, capital flows to its most efficient utilization, but that implies a set of assumptions that aren't always explicit in the statement. And by that, I mean, what is it that capital is optimizing for? Mm -hmm. um, and usually it's for- Finance re return. For returns, right. The old joke, um, I think it was the former chairman of Citigroup, capital goes- to where it's treated best and stays where it's most uh, appreciated. Yeah, and I think that's actually true, and that's why capitalism as both a sort of financial organizing structure and as a cultural underpinning is so fascinating because it is, it is unarguable that capital flows where it is treated best and stays where it's most appreciated, right? It's very difficult, if not impossible, to impose an artificial set of objectives that will violate that fundamental premise. And so the question that, that I like to ask myself is not, is capitalism good? Is capitalism evil? Is capitalism intrinsically beneficial or intrinsically destructive? You know, I'm thinking about Piketty's book, Capital, for sure. example. Um, I think that's not actually the right question. The question is, to what end do we seek to optimize? And the question that I kind of keep coming back to- Re Repeat that. Towards what end do we seek to optimize? Yeah. And I think it's it's easy to go back to that statement that the business of business is business and the mm -hmm. highest end of business is not, you know. Those were simpler times social. though, weren't they? And I, I, I don't like to say it that way, but you're right. And the reason I say that is that um, as an example, I think that the science around climate change is crystallizing. And regardless of what one believes relative to man's relationship to the climate, we recognize that the climate is shifting and we recognize that on some level, the increased concentration of greenhouse gases and carbon is part of that, right? Mm -hmm. and, so, and the more we know that, the less defensible the position that we shouldn't care about it becomes. Um, as an example, I like to use uh, you know, the pricing of coal and it's an easy target right now because of what's happened over the last couple of years in the coal sure. industry, right? So, right, you got more people working in solar in America today than in coal, coal, right? So, so, it's, so it's a soft target, but nevertheless, it's, it's illustrative. If you are the CFO of an aluminum company and the CEO comes to you and says, look, we need to find another 1% net operating margin, go find it. Mm -hmm. You're going to look at your inputs, right? And your single largest input in the aluminum smelting process energy. is energy. And so you're going to look for the cheapest energy. And to date, the cheapest energy has been coal. That's why a lot of the aluminum smelters are in Appalachia. Now, isn't that changing though? Aren't we seeing natural gas start to become more and more cost-effective versus coal? Yes, we are. And that's part of the dynamics around the collapse of price and the rate of bankruptcy filings among uh, coal, coal mining companies. Um, but where I was going was a little bit different. And that is that 
the price of coal to date does not price in the externalities. Right. And I'm not saying climate change. I'm no, saying just what comes out of your smokestack, acid rain, everything else. Poison everybody, whatever, right. And we know this, right? So we know it's, 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 it's not debatable mm-hmm. <laughs> that the burning of coal imposes a cost on society, sure. primarily in environmental and healthcare costs. And those costs are not reflected in the price of the commodity so that the consumer of the commodity is not actually bearing the cost of consuming it. And I think that is the kind of a thing, that's the kind of dynamic that is shifting right now in the capital markets. Um, and that's why when you think about optimization, right now the capital markets are moving away from coal for a whole bunch of reasons, some of which are regulatory, right? Right. You also had uh, people blame regulation too much. You also had a huge M&A spree at the peak of coal price, yep. way too much leverage. These companies who a lot of people are blaming regulation for killing, these companies just were poorly managed. Poorly managed. A lot of bad. So we're going to continue talking about this because I, I find this fascinating. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest this week is Matthew Weatherly-White. Did I pronounce that correctly? You did, yeah. Just wow, not too shabby. Channel your inner Englishman and, That's you'll, right. and you'll get it. Uh, of the Caprock Group, who specializes in impact investing. So let's talk about the phrases that that people have are, are probably more familiar with. Green investing, socially responsible investing, better known as SRI, environmental, societal, and governance, ESG. And of course, what you do, impact investing, how do each of these relate to what you do and how do they differ? And well, you laid it out quite well, perhaps unintentionally from a chronological perspective. SRI became ESG, became impact. Mm-hmm. Um, think about it pretty simplistically as SRI investing was primarily about not owning companies that were perceived to be doing something bad in the world. Not gun companies, not military companies, sure. not vice and tobacco companies yeah. and- a lot of energy companies were thrown under that that yeah, rubric also. Sometimes more re- more recently, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, so SRI really sort of had its um, its its coming of age moment in the '70s and '80s, where a lot of activists were turning to the capital markets and saying, "We should be investing in companies that do a better job, and we should not be investing in companies that aren't." But that that was really in the '70s and '80s. That was a tiny slice. Oh of my! Really. It was it was a rounding error in the right. capital markets, and in and in some regards, SRI tightly defined, is uh-huh. still kind of a rounding error in the capital markets because right. it's based on exclusionary, sometimes inclusionary screens. ESG was really the evolution of that, environmental, social, slash sustainable, and governance. And that really came of age in the mid-90s when the European government said that large pension plans had to incorporate ESG analysis in their stock picking um, I came from Europe, not the United States. No, it was really started in Europe. Um, UBS did a lot of really cool work around that early mm-hmm. on. And ESG is a little bit of a different idea. One of the one of the core tenets of ESG is it's around misc- risk mitigation, mm-hmm. understanding the risks related to poor governance, understanding the risks related to climate exposure or lack of sustainability issues, and then embedding that risk mitigation into your discounting models to determine you know future cash flows for a company and making your stock selection accordingly. Um, and so ESG, in my mind, is really a little bit of a sort of a professionalization, as it were, of the SRI that concept. That makes sense. Yeah. 
And then the ESG movement sort of became, you know, relatively mainstream. Um, I say relatively only because there's still a lot of asset managers that don't do that. Um, what percentage of the total investable assets would you uh, roughly on, guess plus or minus ESG d- is, is running now? Depends on who you talk to uh-huh. and how uh-huh. deep you believe the ESG methodology has penetrated the organization. Right. Give me uh, a range. I would say somewhere between five and 35%. All right. Okay. So the low end was what I was expecting you to say. 35 is an enormous, one out of $3 has some ESG relationship. Well, yeah. See, that's where it gets really kind of slippery because um, ESG disclosure uh-huh. is being driven culturally at this point rather than legislatively or regulatory. You know, the, the there's end- no, there's no government mandate. You must do ESG. No, it's sort of not, a, not in the US. a self-actualized set of understandings that the finance community has kind of reached on its own. Yes, and the reason I drew that distinction between sort of the cultural applications of ESG versus the regulatory applications of ESG is that that determines how deep it penetrates an organization. I think that saying at this point that an asset manager is simply ignoring all environmental and social consequences when making an investment decision, I think that's 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 a that's an inappropriate assessment of investment methodology. I mean, even even a even a firm that would be like intentionally antagonistic towards the concept of responsible investing right. might incorporate some kind of climate risk modeling in the way that they think about doing their analysis of oil and gas EMP companies. Insurance companies. Exactly. There's a whole run of things where where there's some potential exposure and if you don't think about it you're adding risk to your model. Exactly. And that's why I think that the number could be even higher than 35%, because when we talk to asset managers, and we talk to a lot of asset managers, it continues to surprise me how many of them say, yeah, you know, we're starting to contemplate that. We're starting to integrate that into our underwriting, for example, for fixed income. Um, We're starting to integrate that into our analytic models around future discounted cash flows. You know, it's like that, that, that approach is no longer antagonistic to the notion of investing for financial return. Now, how deep it goes, I mean, there's only, I mean, uh, there's only one firm that I'm aware of that does absolute sharp, sharp thinking around the materiality of ESG risks, and that's um, Al Gore and David Bloods from Generation Asset Management. And they're, they're really a private equity venture fund? Is no, long only equity. Long only equity. They, Long only equity. Yeah, really, ten billion. Um, they 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 capped their fund at ten billion. They probably got eleven or so now. Right. Um, is it is, you're talking private venture or publicly traded companies? Long only public equity. Really? Yeah, that's fascinating. It's fascinating. They they do have a private debt fund, mm-hmm. and I believe they do have a small private equity fund, but the core. Their core competence is long only global private. Why equity. cap it at ten billion if you want to really move the needle? It's an open question. I've had I've had that conversation with them, and I think they capped it at ten billion when they started the firm because they didn't want to have asset growth be the primary driver for their business decisions. Um, but I don't that's know. That's interesting. Yeah, I don't that's know. Really, that's per- really quite fascinating. Yeah, and their performance. Here's what gets really interesting: five hundred basis points compounded over the index. Really? Yes. When did they launch? Ten years, eleven years ago. Oh, so they launched right into the right into the mess. Right into the mess. And what's beautiful about that is that it both allows an observer to discount their performance, 
by saying, yeah, well, you know, they didn't have an exposure to carbon and they didn't have an exposure to predatory lending because that's not their model. But, but that's, that's the, the whole point. point. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, you're cheating because you're not exposed to all this bad stuff. Well, by definition, isn't that what you're hoping to that's accomplish? That's the whole point. And what is baffling to me, and I think this, get, this gets to the cognitive biases embedded in Wall Street and the city of London, is why are there no copycats? Why aren't, I mean, think about funds you have the, that are- You have the ETF, she- that focuses on uh, governance issues where companies with uh, a decent exposure of uh, women represented in senior management and the board, I wouldn't say that's a direct copycat, but hey, BlackRock put out an ETF that says, yeah, this is our our, uh, corporate governance ETF. Uh, That's certainly inspired by, it's gotta be along the same lines. Yeah, see, see, I would suggest that that's a market share capture strategy. Okay. More than necessarily an investment methodology. And I may be cynical here, um, but I would suggest, I would posit that gender diversification in the C-suite is an important reflection of the culture of a company. And it may, parentheses or may not, and parentheses, not be immaterial, may not be immaterial. My guest this week is Matthew Weatherly White of the Caprock Group. Uh, he is Dartmouth class of 86. He spent 12 years working uh, in the trenches at Smith Barney. Let's talk a little bit about Smith Barney before we get back to impact investing and, and ESG. Um, you don't strike me as a bulge bracket, big firm sort of brokerage guy. <laughs> how, did, how did that come about? Part of it was timing. I joined Smith Barney immediately following the Shearson merger. Mm-hmm. So it was Shearson, Shearson Smith Barney when I joined them. So it was pre-Travelers Group, pre-City Group. Sandy Weil wasn't even there. I, I remember on the NASDAQ Level 3, Sebash was <laughs> yeah. Smith Barney. Uh, Shearson was was there for DigiCode on, yeah. on, the, on the trading desk. Yeah, so it was a much smaller firm then. I think they had about 700 brokers across the country. Mm-hmm. And they had a small office in Boise, which is where I joined them. Um, and not long thereafter, Sandy Weil went on his acquisition spree. And by the time I left, I think they had 10,000 brokers mm-hmm. and it was, you know, a relatively small division of Citigroup at the time. So when I joined them, it wasn't really a bulge bracket firm and it became one. And that, 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 that journey was really disheartening <laughs> for me. Um, uh, why am I surprised? Yeah. Just sort of personally. And, and, you know, part of it was my naivete when I entered the business, um, but I remember when I went back to training, my first training session, and in my imagination, training was going to be learning how to be an investor and teach an advisor. Teach us about- Teach us how to the markets. What know? is modern portfolio theory? Teach and, us about asset allocation. And it was a month, and they had us in this uh, hotel in Hartford um, <laughs> for a month, and it was cold calling and scripting. Yep. It was all sales. Mm-hmm. And I remember leaving at the end of that month thinking, wow, this is really not what I had expected. Um, but I figured, well, I signed up for this. I'm going to kind of plug, plug my way through it. And I got through the first six months and then qualified for the next level of training and went back to the next level of training thinking, okay, this is where, right. this is where they're going to turn us into investors. You were, you were an army grunt and now I'm, <laughs> all right, now I'm an officer's training school. Yeah, what now now I'm a me? lieutenant. Right. <laughs> um, More sales. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I realized that as much as I am fascinated by and compelled by capital markets, capital formation and aggregation, et cetera, I just didn't really like the job. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's a sales job. It's a sales it's not, job. It's not an intellectual pursuit. It's a sales it's position. It's a sales position. Which has its own intellectual aspect, but it's not the same as capital formation. Correct. And it was it was a 
great experience for me just to really be in the belly of that beast for, for so many years. And along the way, I was tapped to join the leadership development program, which was really about uh, finding guys within the firm that were going to move on to management. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I got a two-year crash course in big bulge bracket broker dealer management. And at the end of it, I was, I stepped off that train and I said, not only do I not want to be a manager, I don't even want to stay here. And it took me about five years to figure out how to exit in a way that worked for me. Mm -hmm. So when you were at Smith Barney, did you try to say, Hey, here's an idea. So previously we, um, also a, a Smith Barney alum, uh, was, uh, was it Smith Barney? It was, is Rick Ferry. Yeah. Who who turned around and said, "Hey, I have a great idea. Let's do low cost indexing." Yeah, and yeah. Pitched them on it. They said no, and it took him a year or two before he said, "All right, I'm going to go do this on my own." Did you try to move the dial there with, "Hey, we could do something interesting here, and the clients will love it." I can't believe you asked that question. We did not prep for this. Um, yes, I did. I actually wrote a white paper to senior management where I said, look, there's these embedded conflicts conflicts of interest in this business model where you've got four primary revenue streams all riding on the backs of one or two consumer bases. And those embedded conflicts of interest are going to be revealed at some point. And here's one way to strip that conflict. And I I, I suggested a, an asset-based account rather than a commission-based account. They called it Asset One. Mm-hmm. And it became the fastest growing account structure at Smith Barney. Nine months or so into that pilot project, they terminated it <laughs> because not not because it wasn't. They were working. pulling money away from more productive brokerage accounts. No, it was because the brokers were using Asset One as an excuse to get paid on an account without doing anything. So what they realized was that brokers were converting commission-based accounts to fee-based accounts, so they could basically ignore the client and still get paid. Huh. That's fascinating. Yeah, it was really it was a really interesting and you know somewhat cynical view into the mindset of the company uh, couldn't you really impose a set of conditions that if you're going to run a, an asset fee-based thing you're required to that's here's a, a financial plan here's a quarterly update here's an annual review you can impose that's some exactly rules. what they did that's exactly what they did and the broker force sort of rejected it and well, so that's the, work it's so actual it's actual labor yes yeah, so the account died <laughs> that's that's amazing I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Matthew Weatherly White, who specializes in impact investing and is the co-founder of the Caprock Group. So let's let's talk about running a business that specializes in, in what you do. Uh, first question, I, I know your background. I know you've been all around the world. You were born in Manhattan. Where, where did you go from, from New York? Tunisia. Tunisia, uh, yeah. well, naturally. As, as one does. Right. Um, and then France, and uh-huh. then England, and then Colorado, which is where I think of as my home. Right. And I went back east to go to Andover, and then Dartmouth, and then I lived in Australia for a while, and mm-hmm. then I moved to Idaho, um, which... So that's a natural progression, that all roads lead to Boise. Totally we've, logical. We've heard that. <laughs> Although I'm told that, that parts of Idaho are just big sky, spectacular country. Fishing, skiing, mountain, hiking. If you like doing anything in the outdoors, yeah. Idaho is like Colorado was like when I was a kid. Really? Oh, yeah. Just not as developed as Colorado has become. It's a remarkable state. And I'm not getting paid by the Idaho Chamber of Commerce for this <laughs> endorsement, but you know, I chose to live there. Um, it's been a it's been a hindrance in many ways professionally, mm-hmm. but the- Not a big financial community in Boise? <laughs> It's the other center of the financial world. It's the beating <laughs> right. heart of you know, London, right. New York, 
Tokyo, Boise, absolutely. <laughs> it rolls off the tongue. But but for an outdoorsman, it's a fantastic place to be. Yeah, yeah. So so let's talk about running this business. Uh, to begin with, so you're an investment firm. When clients come to you, is it, all right, here's what we're going to do with your investments, and by the way, we'll put this much into impact. Is it 100%? What What drives that process and that decision? Yeah, so that's probably a much deeper conversation than than we, the format of the show. We we permits. have time. All right. Um, so first of all, um, you know, we have grown from a relatively modest beginning. We had about four hundred million dollars in assets under management in two thousand and eight. We launched in two thousand and five and spent three years basically building systems and capacity. Started I can marketing. Totally relate to that. I started know. marketing in two thousand and eight and went from roughly four hundred million to three billion now. So a ten years. 10x almost in eight years. Yeah. So it's been gratifying growth. Um, and I think we can attribute that to a couple of things. I mentioned a moment ago that you know being uh, based in Boise has been a hindrance. It cuts both ways. Mm-hmm. We have had some families say to us they intentionally want to work with us because we're not from New York. Right. They think that that leads to the capacity for independent thought, which I think is accurate. 100%. Yep. And we also have had some prospective clients who have said no to us because we're not from a financial center, and they think that we're not going to be able to tap into sort of the sharpest and best thinking. So that geography cuts both ways. I think yep. broadly it's been more of a hindrance than help. However, the way that we've chosen to structure our business was based on a question that the six founding partners asked ourselves. If we were to hire a firm to manage our own capital, what would that firm look like? Mm-hmm. And we spent three years answering that question using a combination of partner capital and a residual business that we lifted out of Smith Barney uh, for operating um, revenue to basically build the answer to that question. And one of the things we did right away was reject the notion of model portfolios. Mm-hmm. and. As soon as, you, as soon as you sort of go through that intellectual process of understanding why a model portfolios exist, i.e. to optimize for the profitability of the asset management firm, not necessarily to drive for best solutions for your clients, mm-hmm. then you realize you can't use model portfolios. So let me let me push back on that a little bit. Please do. Because I know half the audience is pushing back. On oh, that absolutely. This is a really, con- this is a uh, confrontational almost stance. Um. So the counter argument is, look, people are looking for uh, appreciation relative to the risk they're assuming. Yeah. And depending on their personal risk tolerances and depending on what their financial goals are, they want either a lot of risk or a moderate amount of risk or a, a, a small amount of risk, conventionally known as conservative, moderate, and aggressive. Yeah. Uh, we get compensated for the risk we assume in the capital markets up to a point, there's the efficient frontier and a point where you are optimizing how much risk you are taking relative to your expected returns. Yep. And everybody, while theoretically being a unique individual and we're all butterflies, the reality is most <laughs> of us have some similar financial goals, be it saving for college, graduation, buying a home, generational wealth transfer, go through all the usual things. And most people more or less fall into, I am very risk averse, I'm moderately risk averse, I'm not risk averse at all. And so the various portfolios, we could tell people we're creating a unique perspective for them, but really they all end, they all fall into the three buckets. Fair, fair bit of pushback, which I assume you've heard before? Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's a logical and defensible position. However, well, our experience is that that's not actually true. 
And here's why. Um, first, we don't think that investors can articulate their risk tolerance in a way that is reasonable and their risk tolerance shifts with market performance. In 2007, everybody had high risk tolerance. In 2009, nobody had high risk tolerance. And you can't flip portfolios, risk structure, risk bucketing effectively to map to the vicissitudes of the market. But let me push back right on, on that right here. It's not that their risk tolerance has, has changed. It's that the headlines have changed and suddenly they're scared and their behavior and their cognitive issues, the fact that they're fearful and they're expressing that in a way they think is risk tolerance. Really, they're just saying, what's going on? I'm nervous. And it's the advisor's job to say, look, we had this conversation. Here are your financial goals. This too shall pass. But the You can either change every six months or you can yeah. ride this out for- Again, totally agree. The problem is if you're basing your assessment on what the client has told you- At that moment. At that moment, mm -hmm. then you, you, you just automatically enter this really strange world where you're not really sure what you should be doing. But, but, but that's one In other words, of it. They're, what they're telling you the risk assessment is, is only a function of what just happened, not Frequently. the next 10 years. Frequently. And, the, and that's part of it. But the bigger part is, the, we go through this pretty brain cramping exercise of doing lifetime discounted cash flow modeling. Mm -hmm. And when you do that and you um, derive from that process a present value calculation on uh -huh. your future anticipated and known liabilities, and you compare that present value calculation against the assets that they have, you can derive a target after-tax inflation rate of return. This is a big exercise. Right. But by doing that, you can then say to the client, okay, given the assumptions that are in this model, and here they are, here's our discount rate, and here's our rate of inflation that we expect, and here's how old your kids are. You know, it's, it's a pretty logical exercise. You can then say, we believe that your after-tax inflation target rate of return is one and a quarter percent. Mm-hmm. So if you have a lot of wealth and a relatively low burn rate, that's a modest rate of return. That opens up a really interesting conversation because from that, a client can say, oh, you mean I don't have to hardly take any risk and I can right. have an enormous sense of confidence that I've inoculated myself against the future uncertainties of the market? Right. Or somebody might say, oh, wow, I can swing for the fences because I can lock down that one and a quarter percent with 40% of my portfolio and give 60% of my portfolio a really high risk profile, even though they might not consider themselves high risk. But as soon as you unlock that conversation, mm -hmm. it suddenly becomes grounded in this, like, in, this, in this sort of hyper real relationship between the money that they have and how they want to live their life rather than this abstract, well, what's your risk tolerant, Mr. Investor? Right. You know, they, don't, are, they don't know when you ask people that. They, they don't obviously, know. They obviously don't they know. They don't know. You have to. And yet that is the that is the fundamental assumption that almost all of these risk, that all of these model portfolios are based on. What's your risk tolerance, Mr. Investor? You talk to a real estate developer and he'll say, I'm really conservative. All I want is 14%. <laughs> And you'll talk to over ten years, not over not, ten not, years, you know, not compounded annually. Yeah, because if you're, yeah, <laughs> or you could talk to somebody else and says, "I'm super aggressive. I want to get like eight percent." Right. Well, that is aggressive. These it days. is these days. It is these days. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I definitely understand the point. Uh, the thing that I find fascinating, and I wonder if you could talk to this, is there are people who, in the early part of their career, are. Uh, go, 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 acquire, acquire, take, embrace risks, and suddenly they find themselves with a huge pile of money and getting them out of that former risk-embracing <laughs> headspace sometimes could be a challenge because, hey, Mr. Jones, you have $100 million. You don't have to keep swinging for the fences. 
you can throttle back and take less less risk. And that's where that lifetime discounted cash flow model really helps. And it's super detailed. I mean, it can take us six months sometimes really? to build that totally out. And it's an iterative process and all the assumptions get tweaked and revisited. Mm -hmm. But once you take somebody through that process, the conversation shifts. And I want to get back to one of the questions you asked about- The 100% impact funds versus- Yeah. So we are not an impact investing firm. Mm -hmm. We are- an investment firm that has a an interest for, and I would argue an expertise in impact investing. It's not the same thing. There are a handful of firms that are exclusively impact investment firms. Right. We don't do that for two reasons. One, we think that you cannot just simply throw a switch and right. just convert to 100% impact overnight. So by definition, all of our clients, even those who are passionate about impact investing, have some conventional investments in their portfolio. So we want to be able to manage the whole balance sheet. Um, and the second piece is we think that at some point in the future, the term impact investing is going to lose its meaning and we don't want to self pigeonhole into the future. We've been speaking with Matthew Weatherly White of the Cap Rock Group. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and stick around for the podcast extras where we keep the digital tape rolling and chat for another hour or so. Uh, be sure and check out, by the way, where can people find your work, your research, your writings, your white papers? Yeah, so the best place is our blog site, which is www.i3impact.com. That's Integrated Impact Investing, impact.com. I and the numeral three, impactinvesting.com. Just i3impact.com. And then my Twitter feed is uh, at i3impact. i3impact. Be sure and check out my daily column on bloombergview.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. I do this every time. I don't know why. Uh, I'm because talking with Matthew Weatherly White. It's, it's a different segment, so I feel open and free and not, <laughs> I don't have to worry about the time. Matthew, thank you so much for doing this. This has really been quite, quite interesting. Yeah, I love your questions, Barry. It's great to sit with somebody who knows the financial markets as, as well as you do. And for those of you who, obviously, everybody's listening to this. Everybody. Barry just did this, like, I'm embracing the world gesture. <laughs> and if anybody's seen Ann Cuddy's TED Talk about how body language informs, right. it's like, that's, I just saw, like, her deal right there. Really? <laughs> I don't know how I what how that came about. I just spread my arms, and the first time I did it was like, you have to understand, I'm not a professional radio person. I have no training. I have no background. This whole project was a skunk works exercise here at Bloomberg, and it was kind of snuck in the back door. They were like, yeah, yeah, go ahead, kid. Go do that. And the next thing you know, it, it became the most popular podcast at Bloomberg, and they've been nothing but supportive and encouraging, but it was, how did this come about? So early, I was trying to signal in the first few podcasts, this is a different segment, and it was just, welcome to the podcast, because in my ear, I hear the engineer saying halfway, two minutes, one minute, 30 seconds, and I'm, so when you see me sort of hurrying you along, it's yeah. because I'm trying to make the the guy who has to cut up my messy conversation yeah. into precisely seven and a half, eight and a half, six and 11, 25 segments. And now this is open-ended, so it's freeing. I don't have to, uh... <laughs> but you're the first person who's ever commented on it. So I have a bajillion or, or maybe 20 <laughs> questions that I didn't get to. And uh, I wanted to push back on what you said, because I know there are people who are going to push back on that. Oh, yeah. Listen, models are how most of, I shouldn't say most, on the IA side, on the investment advisory side, 
the academic studies show that very often passive beats active and models beat the sort of sector rotation, chin stroking, hmm, I think now energy is going to be good and we rotate, or energy is going to be bad and we rotate out of energy. So the so, idea of models being more passive and less less costly, less turnover, less taxes. So, uh, so in the long only equity- It's an improvement it, from what came before. Totally. And in the long only equity world, which we would, we would consider not only an asset class, but a sub-asset class. Um, that's long just, only equity. Yeah, of course. That that's is exactly right. That's exactly right. Like active management? Really? It, it, there are people who, who outperform. Like Generation, who I mentioned on the call before. And we do, we do have exposure to some actively managed long only public equity. But it's typically people that have high conviction, low, low demonstrated correlation to the broad markets. Most of our long only equity is managed for beta. Right. And it's, we, we do tax management. Which is essentially a model. It's a model. And that's why, and, and I, I wanted to get to that in the official interview, mm -hmm. but I felt you hustling me along. And so I didn't dive No, you in shouldn't there. feel that way. You should, you should always, so media but, advice, always get your answer out. Cause they'll, years ago, um, big digression. Okay. This is, this shouldn't be about me. This should be about you. But I did uh, Nightline. And it was long after the glory days of the first Iraq war. And, and so I gave them an answer and I could tell. So the, here's the way they, they shoot these things to tape. There's a storyline that their writers yeah. and their legitimate writers think they're telling a media story and they write this out and they go out to the universe of possible pundits and they find people who will say different things relative to that storyline. And they sort of assemble this jigsaw puzzle. And when it works, it's great. And when their storyline is wrong or off or diverging from reality, it's not so great. So, and the way they, the little trick that they do is if you give them an answer that they don't like, or it doesn't fit into their prefab storyline, um, they'll ask you the same question slightly differently and they'll do it 20 times until you finally say what they want. But I been doing this long enough that I know the game. And so they ask me a question, how much is two plus two? Four, let us ask you this differently. How much is two plus two in the universe where it's four? You can ask me a different way. So <laughs> the third or fourth question was asked and answered, move on to the next question. Yeah. And they're not used to, I'm the guest, I'm not the director, but I know what, the, what they're pulling and I'm not going to say something I don't believe. And I really deeply think that anybody who goes in the media should always say what they believe and not just respond in a way that they think the, uh, so you should, I, I apologize if I may, you felt hurried along. I wasn't my intention. You should always say, Hey, part of what we do is this. And part of what we do is that. And yeah, so that was my bad, but I felt obligated to push back because I could hear a million listeners saying, Hey, uh, this model, uh, pushback, there's a ton of interesting yeah, and I think the other the other place where it makes a ton of sense is in the endowment model. Oh, right? sure. Because in the endowment model where you have clear, consistent, long-term cash flows, mm -hmm. you can discount that with an enormous amount of certainty, and you can build optimized models that are going to be in place for decades. They don't have a specific funding need beyond 
five percent. They, they a don't year. require flexibility. No target date. They don't is, have to worry about providing increased liquidity. They don't have to know whether or not your client is going to have a kid or want to build a second home or want to invest. It's like right. all the liquidity factors Go away. that you have to think about with individual clients that directly inform the construction viability and durability of a long-term portfolio allocation. Mm -hmm. That's not an issue. And so model portfolios work really well in that endowment model. And people like Katie Hall at Hall Capital have taken the endowment model. You know, she's the CIO at Princeton, mm -hmm. uh, founder of Laurel Capital Management, uh, wicked smart, super cool woman. She founded Hall Capital. Um, she's got 25 billion, maybe more than that, AUM. Mm -hmm. um, and then the whole thing is endowment model. That's it. Just running a model and looking, thinking long-term and not, yes. not worrying about capital calls yep. or- Hey, we're going to have to take 10% yep. of this. And, and she's done a great job with that, I think. Mm -hmm. And there are firms that have done that with really high IQ solutions around model portfolios, but they have a wickedly smart investment committee. They do a lot of work with, you know, controlling stake and direct companies, lots of alternative um, private assets and real asset investments. They don't do a whole ton of sort of conventional long only public equity investing. And so mm -hmm. the model portfolio looks more like Swenson's portfolio at right. Yale than it would for somebody who has, you know, $10 million. So now what do you do? That raises an inter interesting question because the Swenson model was such a home run when it was a unique model. Yeah. And the past 10, 20 years, even though Yale has done well, when you look at all the Swenson imitators, they've stunk the joint up. Yeah, I mean, Im imitation is always hard in the capital markets, right? I mean- you chase performance because somebody found an, an opportunity for alpha. Right. And you arbitrage away the alpha by capital right. flows. I mean, that's how the capital markets work. Right. And that's one of the things I find so interesting right now about ESG materiality, because there's not very many firms, I mentioned generation asset management, there's not very many firms who are doing ESG with an eye towards materiality. Right. Rather than ESG with an eye towards, let's say, responsibility. Let Un unpack the two of those. So sure. the eye towards materiality means they think it's topical and interesting or they think no, it's- no, it's a... material to the operations of the business. So, so let, let me give you an example. Okay. So Coca-Cola, uh, the largest consumer of water, largest corporate consumer of water worldwide, right? Okay. So Coca-Cola needs to be thinking about how they manage that resource everywhere in the world all the time. It is material to their operations. Makes sense. Conversely, I would suggest- cautiously that gender diversification in the C-suite at Coca-Cola might be relevant to how they think about their consumer base. It might be relevant to uh, the conversations that go on about strategic direction of the company. It might not be material to the net operating profitability of the company. Flip that, look at Maybelline, for example. Water is not a material factor for them. Right. But it might be that having a diverse gender base in the C-suite at Maybelline is actually central to their operating viability because their consumer base is going to be buying products that are designed by the C-suite team, right? Right. And so- yeah. Buy women for women. Yeah. And I don't, I, don't, I don't want to imply that only women can make good marketing decisions for women. That's a reductionist exercise right. that I think breaks down with relatively shallow scrutiny. But I think that having a- a um, homogenized management perspective in a company that's selling consumer products doesn't make any sense. And it might be material. And so from a reporting perspective, from an investment perspective, if you are looking at Coca-Cola and they're not paying attention to their water exposure, that's a material risk. Huge. Conversely, if you're 
paying attention to Coca-Cola because they have great gender diversification at the C-suite, that might not be material to the profitability of the company. And so what's happened in the SRI ESG impact sort of translation is that a lot of the early practitioners who really built the discipline were, and I say this with an enormous amount of respect and affection, um, were activists. Mm -hmm. You know, they were saying- No doubt about that. They were saying the capital markets need to be a more just system. Remember, a lot of this goes back to the diversification of South Africa in the 70s. I mean, you could, you could trace SRI, ESG, and impact to a handful of uh, Yale, Harvard. Yeah. Uh, it was mostly Ivies where the agitation to our endowments, which even back then were enormous, are investing in a system that supports apartheid. How can we support that? That success begat a whole run of... Uh, yes. Subsequent, uh, subsequent things. Yes, and I am in no way saying that that is an ineffective or irresponsible or corrosive force in the capital markets, right? How, however, it's evolved. It's evolved a lot, and I don't think that even a uh, a committed ESG practitioner would look at divestment of investments in South Africa and say that was the exclusive cause of the collapse of the apartheid regime, nor that it led to some influence on performance. Because what happened was, I mean, cynically, there was an asset transfer, right? You know, into the hands of people who are willing to do, you know, entities who are willing to do business in South Africa and at a discount. People forget that when when you sell your South African investments, someone's Somebody's on the other them. side of the trade, right? It's and it, it's the old joke about cash on the sidelines. Well, how is there cash on the sidelines? I sold my stock. Someone bought the stock. All we did was transfer. Totally, and that's where I have a real, a real. Um, a quiet but sincere objection to the notion that SRI and ESG investing will transform corporate behavior. It draws attention. I think the diversification, the the diversifying away from South Africa, it created a whole lot of awareness and a whole lot of media coverage. How much it actually influenced the government of South Africa, uh, really, uh, it's, a tu- it's a tough correlation. So so let me bring you back to the issue about diversification and and governance and looking at companies that have more women represented on the board in yeah. the C-suite. So there was a study that just came out. There was a Bloomberg article not too long ago that talked about, and they, they didn't make the causation argument. They only brought up the correlation, which was, on, in general, on average, firms that have more women represented on the board yeah. and in the C-suite tend to outperform firms that don't. So the question I'm going to ask you is, are these firms better managed and because they're better managed, they have a more diverse corporate governance or do women at the higher levels of corporate governance not suffering from what my trader friends call testosterone poisoning mm-hmm. help make better decisions and, and make a more intelligent uh, long-term strategy? I think it's- And yeah. that's a loaded question. It's a super so. loaded question. I think it's a yes and a yes and a we don't know. Okay. That's, that's a fair answer because- yeah. It could go either way. We really don't know. Sometimes it's here, sometimes it's not. But ultimately, nobody has been able to demonstrate it one way or another. Well, I think that the demonstration is um, is coming. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a handful of really interesting, super-focused research institutes that are focusing on this issue. Criterion Institute is one that I think is doing some really cool work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I was just I was just musing the first time I read about this outperformance um, due to sort of gender diversification in the C-suite 
was the Lord Davies report to the House of Lords, um, probably going back 10 years ago. I was going to say, that's not a recent report. Yeah, I think it's about 10 years ago. And he's, he's they've done follow-up reports to that. And I, it's long enough ago that I'm not going to remember the exact numbers. So I'll just, I'll just claim that I'm making this up, but it'll give you a sense sure. of, of the numbers. But they looked at, they did a 25-year regression analysis of companies in the FTSE that had more than, I think it was 10 or 15% of their C-suite were women. Mm-hmm. And the outperformance was, Shocking! It was like it was substantial. It was like forty percent. Yeah, I remember. It was, compound. Really it was like it was like one of those eyeball rollers. It's like right. yeah, somebody blew their math, <laughs> right? But even if you discount that by fifty percent, right? It was still a it was huge still number. a huge difference. And so I started asking myself, what could account for that? Right? I mean, really, by having ten percent of the sea level be a woman, is that going to really make that much difference in the operations of the company? And you know, one thought that came to mind was if you had risen to that level. As a woman you had to be in England, really good. You had to be extraordinary, and so perhaps the influence that you would have over the strategic direction of the company would be out, outsized effectively, because if you made it there, you were exceptional. Mm-hmm. Okay, maybe that's part of it, but I think when you look at some of the research that's being done around behavioral science, and group science, and group IQ, it it becomes suddenly more clear. <laughs> that gender diversification is actually about making better decisions. You're not dealing with a homogeneous decision-making group. Less group think, less everybody walking in March step. And generally speaking, probably a hipper, savvier approach to buy that company um, to their entire worldview of, <laughs> of investing. I've known some pretty square women. <laughs> no, no, I don't mean I don't mean the women. I mean, yeah, 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 I'm sorry. The company itself, joking. the company itself yeah. that is engaging in that uh, means they're fairly cutting edge. They're up to speed on all the latest management things. They know what works. They know what doesn't. And if they're that self-enlightened, yeah. you got to think that, hey, these guys have already checked off all these guys. I've already checked off all the other, I use that as a gender neutral phrase, but I know it's not interpreted that way. Um, I could say, hey guys, to a a group of men or women, and it it shouldn't make any difference. But they've checked off all their other boxes, and if you're up to, okay, let's make, you know, when we look at the prediction markets, when they're uniform, they don't do that well. And when you have a a prediction market where you have a diverse group of traders, Mm -hmm. from both in terms of geographic location, politics economic strata, you get much better outcomes because you don't have, you know, whenever, what's the line? When everybody's thinking alike, nobody's thinking. Yeah. So, so <laughs> I, I, I'm inclined to think that smarter companies making better decisions will tend to have this box checked off. And so it, it, it's really an interesting, is it, which came first, the really good company or the diversification? It almost doesn't matter. You know, it, yeah. it's irrelevant to the to the final performance, but it's interesting to think about what's driving that. Yeah, and I would take it even one step further and say for those companies, it's ex- it's explicitly not a box checking exercise. That's right. And I think that's a really important point to make that for these companies, it's not about, oh, we have to have women, but instead, let's make sure that we get the best people. Right. And frequently, they're not looking for gender. They're right. looking for the best people. And build in a, a lack of homogenous thought that will yeah. give us, our process should give us a better outcome if we make the process better. And here's one way to make the process better. And it's hard. Better. I mean, we're, we're a, you know, our company was founded by six middle-aged white guys, right? Right. Um, and I think our natural instinct is to hire in our image. 
It's a comfortable hiring decision. It's certainly your network of, of your, people it's your network. tend to look like yourself. And so to make that decision to hire somebody who is really different from you, they have to, it's harder to do. You, there has to be a level of intentionality in there mm -hmm. that is not commonly reflected in corporate America. And I think that's the obstacle that we face, this um, cognitive bias towards hiring in our likeness. And it's, it's as simple as you, know, you do an interview with somebody and you know he played lacrosse at Duke or whatever, and you had a brother that played lacrosse at UNC, and so you think of him as a really good guy. Right. Right? And, and that, 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 that commonality becomes self-reinforcing in your hiring practice, and so you do have to bring a level of intentionality to sort of dismantle that, and it's not easy to do. And so I think your point earlier about companies that are more enlightened, it's a bit of a loaded phrase, right. but more enlightened companies, they're going to do that naturally because they recognize that strength comes from a diverse view disagreement in the c-suite leads to better decision making but you have to do that intentionally because it's hard yeah no it's definitely it's definitely not easy i know i don't have you for for forever there's a a run of questions i want to get to yeah that sorry I, that i missed no not at all this is really i find this stuff to be absolutely um fascinating so so let's talk a little bit about your investment process not so much for the passive beta portion of it but yeah. for the active impact portion how do you decide what what to first of all, what are you buying? Are you buying stocks, you're buying mutual funds, you're buying ETFs? What what's the vehicle of choice? Yeah, so in, in the public equity markets and public fixed income markets, we use separately managed accounts with specialty mm -hmm. managers that focus on those markets. So it's mostly unhedged long only equity in our fixed income allocation. It's mostly relatively short duration, very high credit quality. We don't like taking interest rate risk. We don't mm -hmm. want to take a ton of credit risk with our fixed income portfolios because we think they serve the roles balance in the portfolio. Right. It's a pool of liquidity, a little bit of income. It's not where we want to take a lot of that Investment risk. Investment grade, govies, that's pretty much it. Pretty much, a lot, so, of, a lot of munis. So let's go back to the equity side. Um, individual stocks? So we don't pick individual stocks. We're Do not- you pick the pickers of individual stocks? Yeah, yeah. And what we look for is either, as I said earlier, demonstrated capacity around beta with a tax-managed overlay, mm -hmm. um, or- proven low correlation to the broad equity markets with a defensible investment thesis that we think can play out over time. Mm -hmm. That's a, a relatively small part of our overall public equity exposure. But right now, I mean, so I don't know if this is a disclosure or not, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to run the risk here. So <laughs> um, I said we don't use model portfolios. Right. So the way that um, we sort of get around that in terms of talking about it is that we aggregate our 20 largest clients and we consolidate all their portfolios in a sort of a hypothetical exercise around what our exposure across the firm is. Mm -hmm. And right now we are skeptical about the public fixed income markets. Mm -hmm. And we think it's, it's basically an, an environment of return-free risk. Um, and so, okay. so our public fixed income allocations right now are primarily for liquidity. And so we're sitting at about 15% across that 20 largest clients. Our public equity exposure has been steadily coming down over the last year and a half, and we're down in the mid-teens right now for that mm -hmm. as well. So we've got about 30% of our assets in the public markets, which leaves about 70% in the private, alternatives, and real assets market, which is really- When you say real, you're talking real estate uh, or something Real estates, uh, real estate, timber, um, ag, um, yeah. commodities uh, that, that are all tied to a specific- uh, property. Yeah, we don't do a lot of futures. Um right. so it's not it's so not, timber you're it's the land that the timber is harvested from, yeah. not so much the timber itself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um and so 
that alone is a pretty unconventional approach. Grantham has been pounding the table on timber for what, 15 years now? Yeah. And you know, the thing about timber, which is interesting is that the yields from timber are basically dependent upon the rate of growth of the trees. Uh-huh. <laughs> and maybe you get maybe you get a little bit of a lift in the land value if you're in the middle of a construction boom. Right. Um, but you know, basically over the long haul, you're going to get rate of timber growth. So in Canada, as the planet warms up, that's actually good for the yield. It could be. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Perversely. as my mom, who's a who's a wonderful golfer, likes to say, every putt makes somebody happy. You just got to look around and see who's <laughs> smiling. And you know, I. I you're going to laugh, but I spoke not long ago with a fund that is raising capital to acquire farmland in Siberia. Uh, I, there was just an article about the Northern Passage, yeah, which has always been a dream, is now open and cruise ships are going through the Northern Passage. Yeah. This summer, that 100 years ago was frozen solid. You couldn't get couldn't from, from Newfoundland to Russia that way. Yep. Um, and now apparently there's a fairly clear passage for three months of the year, that that used to be frozen solid yeah. all year round, and, and that's no longer the case. And you look north of the Crimea, for example, and if you can extend the growing season by just a couple of weeks on either end, mm-hmm. spring and fall, suddenly an enormous amount of that land becomes arable. Right. That is a huge win <laughs> for holders of arable farmland in northern climes. There's a wonderful book called Windfall. I don't know if you met, you've no. read it, and um, the the author's uh, is escaping me at the moment, but I'll I'll find it. And the book basically tracked a whole bunch of um, uh, here it is. Wow, that was really impressive. Um, <laughs> Windfall by Mackenzie Funk. How did I forget Mackenzie Funk's name? Yeah, it's a great so, name. <laughs> so anyway, he he tracks all these Deutsche Bank, Goldman Sachs, all these private funds that they had set up. And following the money and seeing where people were investing based on expected climate change. You know, in the United States, one of the two major political parties doesn't believe in in climate change, but they're pretty much the only major party around the world that is yeah. doesn't doesn't accept the science of climate change. Windfall doesn't even talk about climate change. It says the world is changing. Where are people putting their money yeah. to make a bet on it? And they find some in what you just referenced, yeah. farmland, there are now funds that are accumulating farmland that they expect will be arable or more arable 10, 20, 30 yeah. years from now. Monsanto developing a salt-resistant grain of rice. Yeah. You could grow, you know, when you have salt come in uh, on, on some of these marshes, you no longer can grow food there. Yeah. You, you're, so there are, there are winners and losers. According to the book, what's dry is going to get drier, what's wet, it's going to get wetter. And parts of the world are going to be underwater. If you're a real estate investor and you're thinking about making investments into the coastline of Florida, I would imagine that your view of global warming would be material. It would be material. And that gets right to what I was saying earlier about capitalism being a fantastic optimization mechanism. Mm -hmm. The fact that people are thinking about that is going to drive capital in that direction. And they may be right, they may be wrong, but it's a capital allocation decision based mm-hmm. on however you're discounting the risks around climate change or the opportunities around climate change. Do we have, do we have any really well understood way to actually figure out what, what the appropriate discounting mechanism, no. mechanism is for, or it's really just a rational guess? And it's it's a lot of, ra- I mean, you can look at all the climate modeling and yeah, you know, maybe there's some guiding, you know, sort of guiding factors in those, but I think of them more like 
guardrails mm-hmm. <laughs> rather than train tracks, right? The climate models are subject to revision. They're subject to an enormous amount of variability, particularly on a year-to-year basis. Um, and so directionally, I think they're pretty clear. Um, and so directionally, if you're aggregating capital to acquire a potential future arable land, I'd be pretty diversified in my geographic footprint. Sure. But yeah, you know, what's going to happen in the next 10 years and how do you discount that value? That, that's know. a challenge. Yeah. So let me get to some of my favorite questions I ask all my guests because I know they're going to come for you for TV in, in momentarily. <laughs> um, so you talked about your background. You went right into to finance right out of, out of college. No, I did not. You did actually. not. So let's, let's go over that. Uh, no, I didn't join Smith Barney until I was 30. So, uh, I let, so what did you do for the decade between college and Smith Barney? I was adventuring. I was writing. I was skiing. I was bike racing. I was a private chef. I worked at the Sun Valley Athletic Club. I mean, it was just cobbling together a life that let me have as much adventure as I possibly could. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like you put in a good 10 years of... Uh... So where were you in Australia? So I lived in Melbourne um, mm-hmm. after the World Championships of Rowing in 1984. I got invited by a couple of Aussie buddies that I met there to come and row with them. They uh, really are serious when they party. You, <sighs> I can't keep up with those guys. The story, Even in my youth, I could not keep up So with the those best guys. part is I joined Mercantile Rowing Club right. in Melbourne, which was sponsored by... Carlton United Brewery. I was going to Makers of Fosters. I was going to so, say Fosters beer. Right. So on our team on our team jerseys we had the Fosters logo and it was it was you couldn't make it up. So after every race the Fosters truck would show up with kegs and on you know Boathouse Row in Melbourne uh, right along right below Princess Bridge on on the on the on the Yarra. Um all the boat crews would come to Mercantile after the race because that's where all the beer, the beer was. Yeah. <laughs> That, that sounds, uh, and by the way, nothing like a, a solid workout and then tapping a keg. Yeah. That sounds interesting. So so at 30, you say, okay, now I need to get serious. You, you join Smith Barney, not just at Smith Barney, but across your career. Who do you think of as your mentors? So when I was living in Ketchum, um, there were two guys that were really my mentors. One, um, Ketchum, 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 Idaho, which okay. is where Sun Valley is located. Mm-hmm. Um, one was a was a retired, pretty young guy who was a bond trader at Solomon, mm-hmm. um, and he'd made enough money to punch out. Relatively young, lived a very modest life in Ketchum, but had a lot of adventures. Right, um, and he and I spent a lot of time in the mountains. And he just got me super inspired. He he was a crusty, salty bond. I mean, you knew the solid guys from the eighties, sure. right? Like absolutely. Yeah. Not not PG rated. Not PG rated at all. And he was just this oddly inspiring guy. Like I just I just really liked hanging out with him and his worldview was was uh really compelling. And then this other guy by the name of Tom Campion, quite a bit older than me, but he'd gone to Andover and Dartmouth, super educated in his um, So you had a parallel background. Very much so. And he was a bike racer and we sort of ended up going on long bike rides together. And his family had a multi hundred million dollar private foundation that mm-hmm. he was running. And so I had these two different, completely different views of the capital markets. And I'd go out and climb mountains with uh, Martin Adams and I'd go out and ride bikes with Tom Campion. And between the two of them, I just got completely fascinated by it. And so when um, Tom turned to me after working with him for about two years, he said, you need to leave Ketchum because if you don't leave now, you're You'll never going to leave. Right. Um, he basically kicked me out of Ketchum. You become a ski bum and that's that. Yep. And I was super pissed for a few months. And then I was really grateful because I realized he was right. And he set me up with a couple of interviews at Merrill Lynch and uh, and Smith Barney and Prudential um, in Boise, and that's sort of how I started there. So the Merrill Lynch training program, I'm, I'm, I recall your your Smith Barney story. So I know someone who used to run that, and 
who was one of the few on the street where they actually went through, here's what capital markets are and here's how you hmm. diversify a poor. It was, so the first half, what they actually educated people and then the sales side came up and hmm. they, they felt that made them better salespeople because they understood it better. But they were the only ones I've ever heard of yeah. that integrated what, what you were looking for and didn't get it. it. I mean, we had a little bit of that, but it was all product pitches. You right. know, we'd have the... The head of mutual funds. It wasn't funds. the theory. It was, let me explain why this fund is so good. Totally. Yeah, no, I, I, I've witnessed enough of that. Um, so you mentioned uh, the mentors. Let's talk about investors. What investors influenced your approach to investing? You mentioned David Swenson uh, at Yale. Who, who else has influenced you? You're going to laugh at this, but- um, I think, Everybody says Warren Buffett, so I won't laugh at anything. Well, I could probably get to Warren Buffett, but I've got a really cool story about Warren Buffett, which I'll get to in a second. Um, I think that anybody who is thinking about entering the capital markets for a career needs to read Reminiscences of a Stock Operator. <laughs> a classic book. Like, you just have Edward to. Edward Lafarve, you, you yeah. can't. <laughs> um, and, and there's a new annotated version of it that's beautiful. Oh wow! That's updated and annotated that a friend um, did. But uh, I'll get I'll get the the edition name of that. Um, I think the two um, uh, Money Masters books. I think they were called by John Train. Money Masters. I think it was yeah John Train, and he basically interviewed guys who had built long term, really attractive rates of return in the in the public equity markets, and then basically published those interviews. And then, you know, I got it with a nod to Warren Buffett. Um, so my grandmother's best friend, she's, she's English. Her best friend was really good friends with Charlie Munger. Oh, really? Yeah. And I was visiting them, went out to dinner with them. And I was young and it happened to be with this older guy who was involved in investing. And um, I asked him, I said, so if you were a young man thinking about getting in investing, what would you do? And he says, I would call this number he wrote down this number. He called this number and asked the guy who answers to send you the bound copies of the chairman's reports for his company. And I didn't know anything about Berkshire Hathaway. I'd never heard of Warren Buffett. No idea. <laughs> so I call the number and it's Warren Buffett's number. He answers the phone himself. He did not. He was his assistant. Right. But it was his office. It was like the direct line. And I say, yeah, I met this guy at dinner his name's Charlie Munger, and he told me to call this number and ask for the bound copies. And the, it was like a combination of silence and laughter on the phone. So you had no idea who Munger was. You had None. no idea who you're calling. Absolutely that, no That's idea. hilarious. No idea. So this was like 1987 or 88, probably. So my Warren Buffett 1988 story is I'm in grad school. I'm working with this guy named Lawrence Cunningham. Uh-huh. All right, he's a, a year ahead of me. He's one of the editors of the Law Review, and he decides to take all of the annual letters from Warren Buffett and bound them in a book and publish them. He's the first guy to well, do it. I got that. I think that's, I'm, Lawrence, that's the one I got. I went to school with him, and at the time, <laughs> I had, I had. so I'm in law school. I have no idea who Warren Buffett is. I have no idea <laughs> any of this stuff. And I'm like, Lawrence, you're, you're going to be a lawyer. He's now a law professor. What are you doing? Well, he specialized in in corporate hmm. governance and things along those lines. And who better an example of the right way to run a, a, a yeah. company than than Warren Buffett? By the way, Reminiscence of a Stock Operator by Edwin Lafarve. John Markham Markman has done uh, the updated version, and it's it's a beautiful book. If anyone wants to read that book, I, I think it's a delight. So we're talking about books now. We've kind of veered into that. What what other books 
uh, do you find um, are interesting or worthwhile? Finance, non-finance, yeah. fiction, non-fiction. So if you measure it by the books that I've given away the most in my life. That's an interesting question. Yeah. Let, let's, let's hear that. that uh, Two come to mind immediately. Um, Miyamoto Musashi's Book of Five Rings or Go Rin No Show, which was- um, Book of, of Five Rings. Yeah, Book of Five Rings. It's, it's the, sort of the Japanese version of the art of war. Because uh-huh. um, they don't love the Chinese version. They do, well, it's it's a different it's a different um, approach because you know um, Sun Tzu wrote really about strategy as applied to military right. um, maneuvers, and Miyamoto Musashi really writes about strategy as a, as applied to one's life, and everything is a metaphor. So it's a it's a very Zen book. I love it. I've Considered given it a, a classic treatise on military strategy, much like Sun Tzu's Art of War. Well, there we go. Um, Either you know it really well, or you just read that. I just read that. Oh, outstanding! <laughs> quick, quick, quick! Google. Skills. I don't know the book at all. Uh, that, that's yeah. the first time I'm hearing of it. I know Sun Tzu. Yeah, and I got everybody used, does. And I got a, used to get a, so I started as a trader, and every year someone would give me Sun Tzu's Art of War for Traders. Sure. So it sat on my desk, and then someone would borrow it. And I'm like, all right, I finally got rid of that. And then <laughs> okay, it would, it would right show back. up someone else. It was, the, it was like the book that was gum on my shoes. What was the other book you, you've given away a lot of? Marcus Aurelius's Meditations. Oh, sure. Um, was it, uh, I have to remember who just referenced that book in a, in a previous show. It might have been Charlie Ellis or it might have been Burton. I, I, I have to go back and find. Yeah. But. Uh, uh, not, so as a former philosophy major, huh. that, that book has originally applied math and physics, senior year, a little bit of a switch. Wow. But um, th- that book is fantastic it's on fantastic. Kindle because you could pick it up, read it for as long as you want yeah. and put it down and start right where you left off. And it's like, oh, I'm right back into this. Yeah. That's really interesting that yeah. you, uh, you, you like that. Anything else, nonfiction or non yeah, you, or finance because everything you've mentioned other than uh, reminiscence, although the Buffett uh, book, um, it, it, I guess we have to consider finance. It's a master's class in investing is the way I think about that, you know, the collection of his letters. Um, when you ask a bibliophile what his favorite books are, you run the risk of paralysis, right? Because there's right. so many. There is no favorite. It's many. Uh, yeah, but one of the things that I like to think of is whether or not when I've read a book, if I wish I'd written it. <laughs> Oh, that's interesting. You know, and there's not that many books that I've read that even as I'm reading it, I'm thinking, oh, damn, I wish I'd written that. And Anthony Doerr's All the Light You Cannot See comes to mind on that one. And Anthony Doerr is a, you know, Tony Doerr is a a Boise guy, so I've got a little bit of a bias there. Um, But that book is just lyrical and beautiful and heartbreaking. Um, All the Light You Cannot See. All the Light You Cannot See. Fiction. Um... And then in the nonfiction world, I mean, I'm, I'm, always, I'm always reading. I'm halfway through Sapiens right now. The all the light of, we cannot see. All the light we cannot see. Um, Sapiens is really interesting. Sapiens is really halfway interesting. Through halfway that. through. I'm really enjoying the badass librarians of Timbuktu, which you got to check I've, out. I've heard that name. <laughs> um, I'm it's probably a third of the way or a quarter of the way into um, uh, The Hard Thing About Hard Things, uh, Horowitz's book. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's just... And those are just it's, the ones that I'm just endless. reading recently, yeah. The, uh, the funny thing about Sapiens, so I, I read a book I really enjoyed called Last Ape Standing about, or we know of 29 human-like yeah. primates, 
We're the Last Ape Standing, and yeah. I referred the book to a friend, and he liked it so much, it's a guy I go fishing with, that the next thing I know, Sapien shows up yeah. on my doorstep. So when I'm interviewing Danny Kahneman a few weeks ago, I ask him the book question, and he comes out and says, the best book I've read in the past five years is Sapiens. <laughs> so now I have this book sitting on my night table that I, I literally just started. I went home and I just started plowing. If Danny Kahneman said, this is the best <laughs> book he read in the last five years, that's it. How do you not? And it's really quite fascinating. It is. I, I, I've been enjoying it. Um, all right. So you reviewed a lot of the shifts you've seen in the world of uh, SRI, ESG, impacting. So we know how that's transitioned. What sort of shifts do you see in that space over the next, let's call it, 10 years? I think the biggest shift is the professionalization of impact investing. You know, we have moved out of what I like to call the anecdotal evidence collection phase, right. where there's a bunch of interesting people doing pretty cool things. And we've got, you know, exits like Tom's and Warby Parker and, uh, you know, Group Denon's acquisition of Happy Family Foods. There's a, there's a bunch of those sort of anecdotal evidence phase that you can run a business and exit it at an attractive valuation that has a clear environmental or social mission embedded in the operations of the company. Who bought t Tom's toothpaste and all the, the... No, I was thinking the... Um, yeah, who bought Tom's? Um, it wasn't Clorox, but it was something like that. It was a, it was it was a big company. Yeah, 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 big company. Like yeah, no, Clorox bought bees. Burt's Bees. Burt's Bees. Um, I don't remember who Which Tom's, Tom's are you referring to? Well, I was thinking actually of Tom's the shoe company. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, Tom, Tom's the, uh, the toothpaste as well. You know, Tom's the shoe company were the one that invented the buy one, give one model. So for every pair of Tom's shoes that a customer buys, Tom's gives a pair of shoes to a kid in, in a frontier emerging market that needs a mm -hmm. pair of shoes. Um, and, that, and that buy one, give one model has become much more common over the last few years really? due to the success of Tom's. That's really fascinating. Warby, Warby Parker is another example of that buy one, give one model. Um, so I, th I think the professionalization of impact as we move out of the anecdotal evidence phase and move into the thesis validation phase before we move into the ubiquitous presence phase, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that is starting to happen because you've got firms like Bain Capital raising an impact fund. You've got Blackstone hiring Deborah, and BlackRock, excuse me, hiring Deborah Winchell. And in the org chart, you know, you know who Deborah is? No. Former executive director of the Robin Hood Foundation. Okay. Super smart. Tutor. Uh, yep. Yep. Very data-driven, understands sort of this world really well. In the org chart, what's interesting is she reports directly to the CEO. She doesn't report to like the head of structured products. Right. So that's a pretty clear statement. And when you think about the letter that he wrote to the last year. Last hey, year. You guys uh, stop jerking around with stock buybacks and do some R&D and some capital spending. Exactly. And that's the largest asset manager in the world. Yeah, it's them and Vanguard are, are one and two. Right. So, so I think that when, you know, when you have firms like Goldman acquiring Imprint Capital, BlackRock hiring Deborah Winchell and really elevating the role of their impact team in the company, Bain Capital rolling out a fund and having 150 internal people apply to work on it. Um, I think- So that's a serious commitment of time and resources. Serious commitment. Or, you know, even- um, uh, what's his name? Vincent Mai, the former chairman and CEO of AEA, he launches a fund, Cranium Capital, based here in New York, to focus on private equity, late stage private equity investing in firms that have sustainability components to their business model. I mean, it's like it's just happening at a pretty quiet level. I was on the call, I was on the phone yesterday with a, a woman from the World Economic Forum, and she used a really interesting adjective to describe the conversations that she's having clandestine. 
Mm-hmm. She said that she is having this conversation with sovereign wealth funds, large pension plans, institutional pools of capital all over the world who are fascinated by and compelled by this notion of impact investing, but they don't want to go public with it's it. It's all on the down low. It's all down there. And they're talking with asset managers, trying to figure out how to talk about it, how to integrate it. I think it's just one of those like subtle and pervasive conversations that nobody's really admitting to yet. Right. Because it doesn't fit with the self-schema that we as investors hold for ourselves. You're mm-hmm. a philosopher. You know what, you know what that means. Um, and as a result, and this is kind of a, this is such a tangent, but I think it's an, an important No, it's one. a relevant tangent. To keep going. I think that because there is this cognitive bias against that, valuations are more attractive. You're not getting a ton of money chasing these deals. Right. I talk to impact investing. Makes, that makes a lot of sense. Possibly. It's a, it's a thesis that I have. See, see my, um, my view of self-schema is that everybody creates this 360-degree worldview. And the question, the most important question investors need to ask themselves is how far has my subjective worldview deviated from objective reality? Yes. And for most investors... It's an enormous deviation, and, <laughs> and for for some people, it's uh, close here, off there. You know, I picture a um, <laughs> I, I picture like when you go into the old IMAXs that were the circular yeah. or or planetariums, and they're composed of all these octagonal shaped paths. How many of those panels actually are are hitting reality? Huh. And so you could create this three hundred and sixty degree view. Uh, we learn a lot about uh, about cognitive issues as as brains deteriorate or have yeah. have trauma involved, and so where different parts are off, like we all have a blind spot behind us, but most of us have a blind spot in front of us we're wholly unaware of yep. where you're too, uh, and, and that's a, just a fascinating metaphor. So the idea that these giant sovereign wealth funds are embarrassed to publicly explore this space. Uh, that means that it's really early days. It's in, really, in it's really early days. There. And I think that when you have a firm like Generation Asset Management, who is demonstrating repeatedly durable, persistent alpha, right, in a market that in theory shouldn't really offer that. You know, is ten years a sufficiently long uh, sample? Maybe not. Maybe they're going to blow up. <laughs> but you still have the argument that is compelling, and maybe it's a narrative, and we all love stories is that nobody has embraced this yet fully. Correct. Correct. Look, the, my own, so uh, full disclosure, we run an asset management shop and we run models and we have clients occasionally ask us, what are you guys doing ESG-wise? What are you doing socially responsible-wise? And, and not even 20 or 10 years, a year or two ago, we really couldn't construct something yeah, comparable was no. we're not thinking to what about we it. were doing. And and the the glib answer was tell you what let it make more money and then you'll have more money to to donate to your favorite charity and sure. and that should be your ESG. But between the way things have changed in construction constructing ETFs, mutual funds, the availability of items as the costs of execution have compressed, so we will eventually be able to say to clients, yes, we could give you. Nearly, it's not identical to the core model, but we could give you an ESG compliant model that is very, very similar to our main portfolios. Uh, So instead of 5,000 holdings, it's 3,500. Instead of 100 countries, it's 80 countries. But it's so close, you couldn't even be anywhere near that. Forget 20, 
Five years ago, yeah. you couldn't even come close to that. And now it's just a function of technology that's available at a cost that wasn't uh, two years ago. Yeah. It's, it's astonishing. Yeah. So I don't want to talk. I want to ask you questions. <laughs> when you guys were spending three years, and, and I know I failed miserably at, at that today, when you guys were spending <laughs> three years building out all of the infrastructure to this, I assume some of it is legal, accounting, oh, compliance, yeah. administration, payroll. But what was the process like building out the mechanisms, the process to put the portfolios in place? For all clients or just for the impact piece? For the impact piece. Yeah, so we're, we're what we call finance first impact investors. And by that, we simply mean that any investment needs to be viable. Like it needs to be a good investment first. We're not gonna make an investment just because it has a sexy environmental story. Mm -hmm. So we start with our totally conventional diligence and right. we determine whether or not this is likely to return the capital they say they're going to return, right? Um, and then maybe a little bit in parallel, but we also focus on the intentionality around the impact strategy, either an environmental piece or a, you know, more of a social piece. And the social piece can be something like affordable housing, which is not particularly revolutionary now. But there's some really interesting cognitive biases around Section 8 housing, for an example, right. um, which are just simply wrong um, and are demonstrably wrong. And so if you're thinking about affordable housing with a Section 8 component, that actually can be a performance enhancer rather than a, a drag on performance. Um, or environmental piece of it, you, know, you might be looking at alternative or renewable project finance, right? So project finance, there's no technology risk. Your counterparties are typically investment grade utilities, sometimes with very long power purchase agreements. And you're underwriting that based on the variability of the power rather than on the credit worthiness of the counterparty. And yet, despite the fact that the sun shines pretty consistently and you can look at long-term <laughs> right. patterns, um, you were seeing, you know, even three or four years ago, uh, you know, double digit returns being backed by a publicly traded utility with a three handle on their debt. Mm -hmm. And that asymmetry made no sense to us. And now you're seeing that cost of capital for the project finance being driven down by the amount of capital flowing into the space. And we're even now starting to see these you know, pretty high CapEx projects without power, power purchase agreements backing them up, which three years ago would have been unheard of. And that mm -hmm. just shows you how far the capital markets have evolved. The towards, psychology has changed. Totally. They're just underwriting these like conventional, Right. it's a conventional energy source. So they're, they're yelling at me because they're, they're coming to take you away to TV. So I'm going <laughs> to jump to my last two questions before, uh, uh, and it takes 30 seconds to get ready for makeup and what have you. But <laughs> what advice would you give to a millennial or someone just starting out their career in finance? I would say develop an awareness of impact investing and expertise you can be fluent in the language go to wall street and get your investment chops down cold and then find a relatively small shop that is focusing on impact investing because in my mind that's the future because right now there's a talent hole in impact investing that, that's really quite fascinating final question what is it that you know about esg or impact investing today that you wish you knew when you started however many years ago that was. I wish that I knew. This is the question, by the way, that stumps people. Yeah. What do you yeah. know today that What would, you, what would I tell myself 10 years right, ago? Right, going I know back now? in time, what would you whisper in your own ear? Be more bold.
Really? Yep. No risk aversion here. Why does that not surprise well, me coming from you? It's not about the risk aversion with the capital allocation. I mean, I think, you know, whatever um, investment discipline you have in place to invest responsibly and well, not from an SRI perspective, but just right. to invest capital responsibly. Right. You don't want to drop that, right? You don't want to just start swinging for the fences from an investment perspective. But you mean be more bold in in your approach to launching a business, embracing a different approach. Yes. Not, hey, just let's lever let's leverage up on these three X ETFs. Yeah, I, ju- I just think about how cautiously we talked about impact investing and how hesitant we were to even let many of our clients know we were doing it mm-hmm. um, because we were afraid that our embedded client base would find that we were, you know, wandering off into the weeds building out our capacity in impact investing. Whereas what we've discovered is that every one of our clients, that's probably a dramatic statement. Um, what has surprised us is how many of our clients that we perceive to be conventional investors have expressed an enormous amount of interest in impact investing. Not necessarily, hey, I'm all in, flip my portfolio, right. but I like this. I like the concept. Tell me more. Right. Tell me more. And you know, I've been getting a fair amount of press recently mm-hmm. for the work that we're doing and people read that. And it gets passed around and suddenly they want to know about it. Right. And I think that had I known there was going to be this level of interest 10 years ago, we would have been more demonstrative at the time instead of sort of hiding it. Yeah, that's what I would say to myself. Matthew Weatherly White, uh, thank you so much for being so generous with your time. This has really been quite fascinating and, and really very interesting. And I'm glad uh, you made the time uh, to see us. I, I hope this hasn't been too painful. Barry, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for inviting me onto your show. Well, well, my pleasure. For those of you who are listening, I would be remiss if I did not thank uh, the team that puts this together. Uh, Reggie is our recording engineer. Charlie Vollmer, our producer. Taylor Riggs, our booker. Michael Batnick uh, is the head of research and, and does a yeoman job uh, helping me come up with really interesting questions. If you have uh, enjoyed this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, where you will see any of the other 100 or so previous such conversations. That's that's a painful number to state. We love your comments, suggestions, feedback, and email. Write to us at MIB Podcast. That's Masters in Business. MIB Podcast at Bloomberg.net. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.